Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. About two and a half months ago, I conducted the first of what I hope will be many interviews with my good friend Bradley Belschner on issues related to the Christian interpretation of Genesis 1 to 11, as well as the relationship of Genesis 1 to 11 to other sources of knowledge. Uh, to get a sense of the, the method that Bradley and I are operating under it, I'd recommend starting with that video uh, before you watch this one if you haven't seen it. Uh, last time we discussed Genesis 1 to 11 in a, in a somewhat general way. What we, what we will do in subsequent discussions is talk through individual texts or challenging issues that face the Christian community as we seek to be faithful to the text in front of our face, but also to conclusions that can be drawn from natural revelation and ordinary providence. Today we're going to talk about the relationship between the fall of man and death. Uh, for, for many young earth creationists, this issue, is, uh, this issue in particular is a linchpin of their system. That is one of the major problems, presumably with an old earth cosmology, which usually assumes animal existence prior to man, is that this view would have it that animals suffered and died prior to sin. And if so, then, so the argument goes, we have, we have severed the relationship between death and sin and made death a, a, a natural feature of God's good created world. And if we've made death a natural feature of God's good, good world, then we've essentially collapsed creation and the fall. Uh, maybe more heady sorts would want to accuse uh, of some sort of ism like Gnosticism or dualism here. <laughs> but is the matter so simple? What does the Bible have to say about especially the, the death of animals? And, and what about the history of Christian interpretation? Uh, we, we ask the latter not only because it is helpful to glean from the wisdom of those who've gone before us, but because it is helpful to see the various uh, that, the, that various options arose in church history far outside the development of, of modern biology and geology. This helps navigate around the claim that we'd only come to these positions if we were trying to, to wag the exegetical dog with the scientific tail. But if such exegesis was available and frequently so in the pre-modern period, such a claim is made, made vacuous in principle. In any case, today we'll focus on the question of the suffering and, and death of animals and how this fits into our theology of creation. And so number one, and I'm going to Pose these to Brad and then interact with him since uh, he knows more about this than I do. Um, so question number one for, uh, for, for our, our good guest. Uh, our plan is to focus on animal suffering today, but it is perhaps worth discussing human mortality prior to the fall first. One of the things that makes the, the young earth creation position seem so plausible is the manner in which the Bible connects death to sin. But there is a question about whether it connects intrinsic mortality to sin, and further about whether or not this connection simply concerns man versus the animals. What, what does scripture in the testimony of Christians do you think have to teach us here? Uh, I think it is most biblical and most rational to, to believe that mankind was created constitutionally mortal, meaning that uh, he didn't have an inherently immortal body. It's not, it's not that Adam would have died. <clears throat> Adam had the tree of life, and Adam was providentially protected by God from dying, but he did not have the kind of body that Jesus has after his resurrection. Jesus has uh, 
it's still a body, but it's a different kind of body, a body that cannot ever die. And that I'm convinced is the sort of body that Adam was uh, destined for. He was supposed to eventually get that kind of upgraded body like Jesus got. Um, maybe after some kind of um, symbolic death resurrection cycle, like, you know, like this deep sleep that he goes into that Eve comes out of, uh, created mm. for maybe it's after something like that at some point. Some sort of probationary period, if you will. Yeah, yeah, I kept <clears throat> similar with the Tree of Wisdom, where with the, uh, it's wrong for him to eat from the Tree of Wisdom to, or the Tree of Knowledge of Good and Evil. Rabbis often call it the Tree of Wisdom, I mean, because Knowledge of Good and Evil, it's an important aspect of wisdom. Um, to eat the Tree of Wisdom too early is bad uh, and prohibited uh, to grasp for that early, but at some point, presumably, he was supposed to eat from the Tree of Wisdom. That's why God made it and put it there. God said it, all the trees are for you to eat, except not this one. Presumably not right now. So also, he was created good, or even very good, but not perfect and not ultimate. Uh, there was more yet to come, which is, I think, important for other things too in creation. So Adam would be created uh, constitutionally mortal, needing the tree of life to be immortal, which is why after he sins, uh, God says, okay, let's kick him out of the garden now because now that he's a sinner, he should not have the tree of life and live forever. Uh, he should not keep eating from this tree. So we're talking about an atom with a body that could die. Um, and I guess like hypothetically, if Adam fell off a cliff or something, then that's the sort of body that would have died from falling off a cliff, but he just wouldn't have fallen off a cliff. God just wouldn't have allowed that to happen or uh, who knows, providentially he would have been sustained in his immortality until such time as he probably would have been upgraded to his uh, super body 2.0 or whatever. Yeah, and 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 uh, I mentioned that that uh, the the testimony of Christians. Uh, I mean, I mean, the traditional position in the history of the church actually seems to be something like this. Is that is that correct, or is or what's the yes what's the most emphatically yes? There there were, to be fair, a few weird early church fathers who believed that um, before before the fall, there would have been uh, this constitutionally immortal body where uh, everything is so perfect that uh, Adam would never have hungered and never would have slept and never would have cried and would have never pooped. And uh, like all of these things that are just inherent to our created bodies, they're just envisioning something weirdly angelic. Like he essentially had no body because he was immortal. I mean, I'm not even sure what it means to have the kind of body they had in mind where you're not eating and pooping and sleeping and so on, uh, and have no thirst and no tiredness and so on. Uh, but if you're talking about uh, most church fathers, most of them do assume that you have uh, both animals and humans capable of death um, and humans uh, before sin providentially kept away from death and after sin uh, allowed to die and condemned to death. It is through Adam that 
sin enters the human race because sin or it is through Adam that sin and death enters the human race, of course. Uh, right. Humans were never supposed to die. That is, that, is an, uh, that is very, very clear biblically and doctrinally and so on. Humans were never supposed to die. But it's different saying, therefore, humans physically and constitutionally were never having those sorts of bodies that could die. Right. Um, a very brief aside, kind of follow-up from that, um, this position about the tree of life, I'm sorry, the, tr- the tree of wisdom. Uh, is, is there a Jewish precedent? I know in, in recent exegetical traditions, there's a, a number of scholars who argue that uh, Adam would have eventually eat, eaten from the tree of wisdom as per- perhaps after a probationary period. Is there a church historical or Jewish precedent for that, uh, that exegesis? There is precedent. I can't remember... I think Irenaeus held to it. Uh, that's the one example I can think of in church history. I mean, there might be others. I think Irenaeus said it, but I, I, I wonder if there's a Jewish precedent as well. Oh, there's certainly a Jewish precedent. Um, I can't, I'm not very familiar with uh, specific names of rabbis. I, and I get them mixed up too, so I can't give you names there. Sorry. Okay, no worries. <laughs> you can Google it. It's, I'm sure it won't be too hard. Fairly to call, yeah, pr- fairly easy to find. Yeah. Um, all right. Following up from that, then, what what evidence complicates the view that to to be a carnivore, for instance, is intrinsically fallen? And this is one view that young Earth creationists have a lot of time that car, car, carnivore uh, carnivorousness, being a carnivore, <laughs> is intrinsically fallen. Uh, and, and and what do we do with you know Genesis nine and all of this? You know, some people want to say that you know particularly uh, um, uh, human consumption of animals uh, is something that right. happens significantly after the fall, though I know that there's some historical debate about that as well. But let's take that first part first. Uh, what, what do you think complicates the view that being a carnivore is intrinsically fallen? What biblical evidence, for instance? Well, uh, to take, take a step back here and think about it, uh, the broader argument, the, the steps that I go through to think about this is I think, okay, number one, uh, man has this constitutionally immortal body, even though he never would have died without sin. Um, and secondly, if man's body was mortal, how much more than were animal bodies mortal? I mean, obviously animals were mortal. Uh, and that is a uh, nearly unanimous opinion in church history uh, before, uh, before the modern era. And uh, thirdly, then, it makes sense that man would have been allowed to kill animals and to eat meat even before the fall, uh, which makes sense partly because when you think about, okay, if Adam's walking around the Garden of Eden, suppose he, you know, steps on an ant. Animal death has now occurred. Like, he killed an ant. Yeah. (laughs) Like, oh my gosh, you know. <laughs> um, but I mean, technically, yeah, he killed an animal, uh, even if it was just an accident. And I don't see any reason to think that that would have been uh, impossible to occur before the fall, that Adam would have stepped on an ant. Um, and so also, for Adam to eat meat before the fall, I think makes sense. And Calvin talks about this too. Calvin thinks that they were uh, allowed to eat meat before the fall. In fact, almost all the reformers uh, believed that man was allowed to eat meat before the fall. Vavink talks about that. Uh, he summarizes some of those arguments in his 
pragmatics. Um, and if you're, in Genesis 1, it talks about the creation of animals and the vocabulary it uses on day six when it's talking about the creation of the animals is, uh, one of them is the term for domesticated animals specifically. Uh, so it, it actually says like, and God made day six, the domesticated animals, which is interesting because why on earth would Adam have domesticated animals before the fall? And what is he doing with these? I mean, if he, it's either clothing or meat or milk, I suppose. I guess you could say maybe milk was okay before the fall, but then get into weird territory there. Um, as it pertains to Genesis 9, Bavink points out, uh, as do some of the other, uh, some other reformers that he mentions, that it wouldn't make sense to uh, give mankind extra permissions after the fall that they wouldn't have had before the fall. Like, oh, you're a sinner now. Well, here you, you get more perks and authority now over animals. Like, it, it doesn't make sense. If anything, you should have more authority before your fall. Uh, but offsetting that is the fact that uh, Adam initially before the fall is in this kind of uh, immature baby-like state. Doesn't even know the difference between uh, good and evil and so on. Uh, so I think it makes sense to say that God would have uh, given him animals to eat before the fall and he had domesticated animals and so on. Perhaps in Genesis 9, the emphasis is that God is also giving uh, the wild animals for him to eat. There's not uh, so much of an emphasis on that in earlier parts of Genesis. You just have Abel and his flocks and so on. But in Genesis 9, it's all of the moving things. Uh, and I don't remember the Hebrew, but I think that might be the word often used for wild animals specifically. Um, yeah. Back in Genesis 1, I should mention, actually, Genesis 1, I think, verses 29, maybe 30, um, it, that's when it talks about how God gave the green plants for all the animals. Um, and that is the main textual support for there being no carnivores before it falls like, look, green plants. But that has been interpreted historically uh, as a statement more about the general provision of God for his creation. It's not, not like in uh, some of these false religions where people need to give foods to their gods, you know, offer their, you got to feed your gods uh, with your burnt sacrifices, but no, God is feeding the people and God right. is the animals. And of course the way that God feeds uh, the ecosystem is with plants. Plants are the foundation for all food no matter what, yeah. even a carnivore. So that is, is roughly how that's been interpreted historically uh, by a lot of people. And I think that is the more fitting interpretation, especially when you look later in scripture about the way God speaks about carnivores. But yeah. I, I digress. <laughs> yeah, it, just a kind of, kind of piggybacking on some of that. It's interesting to think about Cain and Abel. And this happens all over Genesis, it seems to me, uh, especially in Genesis 1 to 11 is that you see kind of 
later covenantal categories sort of sort of has sort of put into the proto history so uh you know uh, noah's noah's animals were clean and unclean for instance which is real interesting like where did the distinction for noah between clean and unclean animals come from but this is this is the portrayal and similarly with um cain and abel you've got the uh uh, you've got uh, two two persons, and, and perhaps this in part represents sort of your sedentary and your nomadic peoples in, in a certain sort of way. Not that I'm saying Cain and Abel aren't historical, but they nevertheless are sort of prototypes of these kinds of uh, types of people in the ancient world. Um, but they're sacrificing. I mean, I mean, I mean, the idea is is that we're we're offering, you know, you know, Abel keeper flocks and Cain has the, if I'm remembering that correctly, Cain has the grains. Uh, and this sounds very much like the Hebrew sacrificial system, which people did actually participate in um, uh, with food. Uh, people, people who sacrificed to God actually ate some of the, you know, God accepts the sacrifice of the animal that you give, but they also ate part of that sacrifice. Yeah, right. You know, and so there's there's some you know it's it seems like, and I want to say, and, and you might you might know more about this than I, uh, there are some six day creationists, if I'm not mistaken, who aren't actually uh, opposed to uh, uh, men eating animals or or animal death in all forms. Oh yeah, actually, so one of my favorite uh, biblical exegetes, James Jordan, he is. He affirms animal death and predators before the fall. So also Peter Lightheart. I mean, those are modern guys, but right. uh, you have a lot of folks historically who affirm that. Thomas Aquinas, uh, he says that it is uh, most unreasonable to deny carnivores before the fall. Uh, Augustine explicitly talks about carnivores before the fall, um, says that there were carnivores before the fall. Um, Basil the Great. There's a lot of folks. It's, it seems to me, though, based on my limited survey of these primary sources, that the most common opinion historically among uh, theologians before the modern era is that animal death happened before the fall, but uh, sometimes they didn't affirm carnivores or animal suffering, uh, which is an odd position because we tend to conflate the two. Well, if there's animal death, of course there's predators, but you'd have some folks who said, well, if, of course animals died, but you know, there weren't, wasn't painful and there weren't predators before the fall, which is strange, but that, that, is, that seems to be a decently common view. And it also seems decently common uh, in the church to affirm just straightforward carnivorism and suffering before the fall for animals only, not for humans no suffering for humans before the fall, not, not significant bad suffering anyway, not before the fall. Right. Uh, what about, you know, do, do you think this continues to the eschaton? Uh, you know, this is an interesting question, you know, what, eschatologically, would it, would it make sense to affirm, uh, you know, the con continued meat eating, if you will? <laughs> yeah, that's, okay, speculations about the eschaton are always tricky. So yeah. everything, I say here is with a pretty big grain of salt. I'm I'm very confident that there were predators before the fall, and that biblically and philosophically that makes sense. I'm not so sure about in the new heavens and new earth uh, what happens. I I think personally what makes most sense is that there will not be animal suffering, and not 
not predation as we know it now, at least in the new earth. I think that we are right to intuitively look at animal suffering and say, okay, this is not ideal. There's something, this is something, something not great about this. Um, and I think that perhaps in prophecies, prophecies like Isaiah, where you have a wolf lying down with a lamb and, and so on. Uh, I mean, really those most, most proximately, those are talking about Israel returning to the land of Israel. But ultimately I think they're also speaking to something about animals in the eschaton. And I think it is reasonable to guess that either there won't be any predators not an ecosystem and the circle of life as we know it in the new creation, or if there is, it'll be very different and much more pleasant. Like the gazelles will find it fun to be killed and then they'll rise up and do it again tomorrow. You know, something weird like that. I can imagine. Um, who yeah. <laughs> something, something CS Lewis -y, if we can put it that way, <laughs> yeah. reflects yeah. on some of these things sometimes in some creative ways. And, and it might be that there's, um, there, there's some elements uh, of reflection here that, that need to, uh, maybe, maybe well, let me say it this way, maybe one relevant piece is uh, the relationship of Eden to outside of Eden. Uh, you know, one thing some biblical scholars have pointed out is that we shouldn't assume that the world inside of Eden is the same as the world outside of Eden. And it could be that man's dominion over the animals inside of Eden, you know, kind of the theme of the lion dwelling with the man inside of Eden, um, accomplishes something that's not occurring sort of in the wild as such. Uh, but if we could, ex if we could imagine the new creation as that, as, as that ultimate, and this is really the way the Bible depicts it, as the extension of the boundaries of Eden to fill the whole earth, uh, yes. that, that covers the life of animals as such. Um, uh, and, and, and you do see some interesting, um, you do see some interesting reflections as Lewis and his, uh, Lewis, in fact, in, in the book Miracles, has this just wonderful section on uh, what it looks like if nature governs reason versus reason governing nature. And one of the things interesting that he points out is that when reason, you can think of man, the kind of the rational animal governing nature, it's actually great for nature. It works out very well for nature. Nature is yeah. raised up. Uh, nature can actually function in a, in a in a more beautiful way, and of course, he's not thinking of modern sort of sort of uh, sort of techno technological, you know, sort of excoriation of nature. He's thinking of uh, right. he's thinking of a garden, really, <laughs> in a sense. Yeah. Uh, but you could think of that uh, as uh, with the animals as well. If there was perhaps a kind of dominion over animals where you could, in fact, imagine uh, a restored dominion over these beasts um, that was good for them. Uh, that perhaps this would significantly alter the picture of the natural world. And, you know, and again, well, yeah. inside the garden, probably inside the garden, that picture exists, whereas outside the garden, there's more, uh, maybe it's a little more, uh, it's a rougher just life. Will. Think about, for example, um, the wolf lying down with a lamb, right? So humans, we've bred sheepdogs. We have literally taken wolves and bred them to lie down with lambs. That prophecy is now, I mean, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, at least that kind of wolf. That, they are descended from wolves directly. Um, we, when you look at Genesis 1, it, there's certainly a difference between Eden and the rest of creation. Um, Eden is the garden that is being specified on, on this hill.
hill here with the four rivers coming out. And you have Adam being told to go forth and take dominion and subdue it. That's that verb in Hebrew is the same verb given to Joshua talking about taking conquest of the land of Canaan. Like it's kind of a violent verb. It's like now go, go forth and conquer Adam. And presumably then there was something to conquer. And this is not all this tame, wonderful, well-tended garden. And even in Genesis five, like uh, Genesis one, I mean, day five, it talks about the sea creatures. It mentions the creation of the sea monsters. Uh, that's the probably talking about something like Leviathan. I mean, you're talking about like big nasty things being created in the ocean on day five. And I mean, even if it were, even if you interpret that as whales, like, oh, it's talking about the blue whale. The blue whale is a predator. Right. It eats krill. Like that's like, that's off limits for young earth creationists in, in terms of, well, young earth creationists. Right. That whales right. after uh, after the flood. We'll we'll come back to that actually in a bit. Now, before we get there, um, you know, what about saying, um, you know, we've talked about, uh, you know, we need to distinguish, and I think we've already implicitly said this, but we need to explicitly say it that maybe we need to distinguish between death um, and suffering. Um, aren't there prima facie philosophical reasons to think that? that death is just bad or maybe suffering is just bad. Um, you know, what do we do with the, you know, we want to preserve some talk of the, uh, we want to preserve some talk of, well, not preserve some talk. We want to say quite explicitly with scripture that creation is good. Um, and yet, you know, somebody kind of wants to say, but yeah, but it's some sort of visceral phenomenological level. Isn't death just bad? You know, how do we, how do we, how do we navigate, you know, that tension? Um, well, in, typically, I think what people have in mind passages like Romans five, where it talks about how death came into the world through Adam. Um, in context, though, that's that's I think clearly talking about mankind's death, which is why it's right. all mirroring it with resurrection and Jesus. I'm like, well, logically, if you're saying that it's talking about animal death, you, then you're talking about Jesus. You know, resurrecting animals and being one with them this is weird then <laughs> that's not what it's right. talking about in Romans 5 um, death is bad uh, when we contrast it against uh, an expectation of non-death obviously so humans are not supposed to die therefore human death is obviously bad um, animal death uh, the vast vast majority of Christians in history have not assumed that animal death is a bad. Uh, they've assumed that, well, animals, that's just what they're supposed to do. God created them to die. And maybe there's some aspect of that which is mysterious and weird to us. Um, it might be that um, there are parts of it that, that don't make sense to us. Maybe we have to end up being like Job at some point and saying like, well, why, why do bad things happen to good animals? You know, <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I mean, it, say that. 
Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's what I would think as well, is that some of it you have to, you, you define the badness of death ever against the telos, right? And, and of course, it's the right. same thing with plants, right? Like plant, presumably uh, plants, quote, quote, die <laughs> right before right. the fall. But, but why is plant death okay and animal yeah. death it's like, well, because plants are supposed to die. Like, I mean, plants are, plants are supposed to be, right, Maybe right. animals are supposed it, it to die. Could that, it could be that, um, you know, the issue is really then one, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, it could be that the issue is then one of suffering. I mean, you could kind of imagine, and again, Lewis, Lewis sort of had the imagination to sort of get at this, that you could almost imagine a world in which animals sort of, uh, uh, joyfully and willingly give up their life, you know, without a without some amount of like sort of miserable suffering, for the sake of being absorbed in something higher, which is mankind or you know the food chain mm-hmm. or whatever. But the you know so that you could imagine this actually being a peaceful sort of delight that like my existence serves some greater purpose, and so, not that they think of it consciously that way, but that this would not be a a resisted. And in fact, it's kind of. Noah, that, where you talk about animal resistance, but what about animal suffering then? You know, so suffering is a, is a different thing than death. Clearly, given the, you know, the kind of the increased pain language given to Eve, there was some pain before the fall. You know, sometimes we miss this that like I will multiply your pain in childbirth. God says to Eve. Well, that implies that there was some pain in childbirth, some not not fallen level of pain. Uh, uh, before the fall, but after the fall, I'll increase your pain. So there's some kind of judgment aspect to the pain there. But uh, but one might but but one thing we might talk about then is is senseless suffering. Uh, can we can we opine that perhaps there was little kind of meaningless if you if I could put it that way before the meaningless suffering before the fall, and that perhaps the fall increases the kind of senseless suffering of animals that we sometimes witness. Uh, what do you think there? How can we talk about uh, how can we talk about that? that kind of suffering, the impact of, you know, of the fall on animals. Yeah, I'm, <clears throat> I'm divided here because there, there's basically only two reasons to think that there's a problem with animal death and suffering. There's uh, biblical exegesis. We read really just a precious few verses. Like you can list them on one hand. It might make you think, okay, maybe animal death and suffering is not supposed to happen uh, in this creation. And the other second uh, line of evidence is just our general intuition that animal suffering is bad. Like we, like you imagine a dog suffering in pain and you're like, man, that, I know what that dog is feeling kind of more or less. I, that's not good what that dog is feeling when it is in horrible pain. And uh, I believe that is legitimate and we need to not deny that. I think it would be uh, an error to say uh, a snip big deal, you know, like torture dogs, whatever, you know, <laughs> I guess yeah. no, it's, clearly this matters and torturing dogs is wrong. Um, and yet um, I don't think there's good reason to say that God didn't create it this way. I think God did create it this way. And I think he called it good. I think God made Leviathan. God made the sea monsters. There were sharks, the blue whales, torturing all these millions of krill. I mean, it's torture for a krill um, being eaten by a blue whale. And it eats like little shrimp. It does, people think sometimes it eats algae. Blue whale eat like little two-inch shrimp things. Mm. And the animals, why, why is it... Uh, 
the way that God speaks about this stuff is too positive. I mean, let me turn up uh, uh, Psalm 104 here. Um, it says, uh, uh, saying this about, about God. You bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. Leviathan, which you formed to frolic there. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. And in Job, the way that God talks about these predators, again, it's in that part of Job where he's... Uh, uh, giving the long, God is giving the long spiel to Job about the, all the different things he created. He says, uh, do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wonder about for lack of food? Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? It dwells on a cliff and stays there at night. A rocky crag is its stronghold. From there it looks for food. Its eyes detect it from afar. Its young ones feast on blood. And where the slain are, there it is. And this is, God praises carnivores in scripture. This is, it's, they're not depicted as evil, wicked things or the result of sin. It's like, God is like, these are awesome things. I made them. I give them food. Great. And Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It, it seems that God did make creation with animal suffering. And that's a struggle for me. That means I want to say to God, I want to look at animal suffering and say, this is because of sin, because something this bad had to be because of sin. And it's, it's, easier to say that with people. Like when a human is suffering, I'm like, aha, you know, human is suffering. It's because of human sin, of course. Um, but when an animal is suffering, it's like, okay, the animal didn't sin. It's like, ah, uh, well, uh, it was Adam's sin. Ha ha. But, but it just it's doesn't. It's not written that way. It, it, it never in the Bible, never in the Bible does it say, oh, and then as the as a curse for your sin, there shall now be carnivores. Or as a curse for your sin, I'll now recreate every single creature in the world to be both either defending against carnivores or being a carnivore. <laughs> I wonder if there's a way of, of putting some of these emphases together. Because again, like we, we could distinguish between, you know, car, car, uh, being a carnivore as such and sort of maybe a certain kind or a certain degree of suffering. So again, like woman experiences pain before the fall, um, but there's, there's an element, there, there's a level of pain that can be experienced in, in childbirth, uh, yeah. a vulnerability to pain that can be experienced in childbirth that is, that is a, a function of judgment. Um, and and one, one option here uh, is, of course, uh, there, there's certain theodicy options. One possibility that some entertain, such as, as Stephen Webb, uh, is that there are sinister agencies at play in the world prior to the fall. 
and that Eden is a world of, of domestication and the reduction of actually a senseless suffering, the, you know, the site of defeating enemies and subduing their influence. Uh, and, and I wonder if this combines scripture's emphasis on creation as under God's complete sovereignty, but also as, as subduing chaos. And, and I guess I'm pulling together a couple of themes there, and, I, and I'm not totally concluded about this in my own mind, but just to kind of maybe put those pieces together. Um, again, if we can make the distinction, the distinction between sort of like, it's not pain as such. So, so Eve can have pain, but there's a level of pain that reflects judgment. And in the same way, maybe we can say that there's a level of kind of carnivore pain activity among animals that it has a, you know, that a, a C.S. Lewis-like imagination and these verses of scripture that you've mentioned could see as a good thing. But perhaps there's a, perhaps there's a, an, a level of malevolence uh, that indicates perhaps some uh, some the 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 the, uh, the activity of sinister agents sort of intruding in the process, if you will. I mean, certainly Satan, for instance, in the garden, the serpent is prior. He seems to be a character that comes from outside of the garden, right? You know, he kind of slithers in there, <laughs> and that's 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 sort of the way it's portrayed. Um, uh, and there's a there's 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 a lot of there's a lot of biblical detail we could get into on this that we we can't get into right now. And you know I, I want to think of the work of Mike Heiser here. And interestingly, even in um, even in ancient uh, even in uh, sort of ancient myths, and I find this really interesting. Uh, actually, in original Zoroastrianism, uh, not that not that Zoroastrians are our spiritual authorities, but I find it interesting that <laughs> when Cordron's work on Zoroastrianism shows that there's kind of two stages of original Zoroastrianism, um, that that the version we know of uh, is sort of a, a, a ultimately dualistic form. In other words, creation is just uh, intrinsically sort of this battle between the good and the dark, or whatever. Uh, but he argues that's actually a development in Zoroastrianism. The actual original version uh, actually did have being and God and the good as prior to any evil, but had nevertheless that evil sort of started started attacking and intruding on the process very early. So the moment you know, sort of God starts the creative process, there's sort of there's sort of agents that rebel. Uh, if you will, and uh, are are attacking the process and trying to kind of trip it up, um, and, and it's interesting that um, in uh, I mean, of course, you see this maybe reflected in a lot of ancient Near Eastern cosmologies where creation is kind of an act of war, right? You know, like the the creation activity of the god who's victorious is the one that triumphs over whatever's trying to kind of prevent this creative process. And Genesis 1 is conspicuous, in fact, because it doesn't quite portray God that way. Uh, the sea monsters are not particularly a big threat to him. But, it's, but Genesis is not the only depiction of creation. And that's what's so interesting in the Old Testament when we take it as a whole. It's the primary depiction. It's the, it, for good reason, uh, uh, takes primacy in our, in our theological imagination. But there are some Psalms that do depict some of the ordering of the world, interestingly, as a kind of act of war. Uh, and so, uh, you know, so you wonder if there, if you take sort of the whole biblical corpus together, there's maybe a larger picture which would help not again say that death is uh, absolutely bad prior to the fall, but perhaps there's, perhaps there's place to be had for the role of, 
um, maybe sinister agents and intruding and sort of messing up the process a little bit. And, you know, the work of Mike Heiser uh, helps us a little bit here in other areas, but I wonder if by parallel there's something to be said here. I'm not certain of this, but I, but I do wonder if it's a category that's available, uh, an explanatory category, not that gets all the work done, but maybe gets a little bit of the work done. I know there, there's, there are some folks who would say, for example, that hyenas were kind of created by demons. Um, and I, I see where they're coming from. I mean, <laughs> hyenas are horrible. We've all seen The Lion King. It sure seems like it. Well, and you wonder if you get a depiction of this, you know, I've been reading uh, at the age of 38. Again, it takes a little bit of imagination to perhaps wonder about some of these things. But you think of like, why in Tolkien, for instance, and and I find this real interesting. Why in Tolkien are the orcs bad? You know, there's, there's the elves and there's the hobbits and there's, there's kind of all these creatures that are diverse and there's something, and they're pre-man, right? They're actually kind of pre the age of man, if you will. Uh, but Tolkien sort of imagines this universe with kind of all these, all these you know, types of species. But there are some species that are clearly the kind of the work of sinister agencies. Um, uh, and, he, and, and I'm not sure that he's commenting on this directly, but it's again, he's, he's depicting a world perhaps where these kind of agents are at work producing certain kinds of things which, which, sort, of, which sort, of, sort of consume what would be a good created form. Um, and again, it's not that creation isn't good. So there's still a distinction between creation and the fall. There's a distinction between creation and the fall of mankind. And there's a distinction between God's good creation and the fall of, you know, we might say angels, you know, a sort of angelic fallenness. But perhaps there's a role that, that angelic, and again, it's preserved in a lot of human civilization to sort of imagine sort of the role perhaps of these, these lesser deities in in tripping up the created order, perhaps partially to prevent um, prevent uh, a God's uh, God's design with mankind. I mean, this is, seems to be Satan's activity all through Scripture is actually to present what God is intending to accomplish through mankind. For a little while, uh, the Scripture says man is made lower than the angels, but but God is uh, but, but the but the goal is to to make him higher. Um, uh, but the but the these this kind of sinister angelic agencies seem to be I don't know jealous or or whatnot and are trying to present this prevent this outcome or, or prevent the whole created project or, or mess with the whole created project uh, uh, so that God can't accomplish His purposes through it um, and, and and it's weird I mean Genesis there's a whole history I mean there's a whole uh, maybe I should say that differently there's a whole the let us language in Genesis is clearly, I think it's established in biblical scholarship at this point that the let us language is God and his divine counsel. That's clearly what's going on in Genesis. Uh, it's God my, talking to the other angels and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, that's God. You know, I think Heiser has shown that definitively. That's what's going on in Genesis. And yet there's not really an origin story of angels, right? So it's not, Genesis is not focused on that. Right. Uh, and but so I should add, like, we don't really know what angels do and don't do in creation and in biology. Um, mm-hmm. We're talking about maybe demons making hyenas or something. Um, right. Uh, personally, oh, I, I should have, I, by the way, uh, sidebar here, I should have said this in the last interview, some feedback that I got from the previous talk that we did was that I should be more upfront 
about my views on uh, the age of the earth and stuff like that and not try and be too nice. In, my, in our last talk, I was too nice um, to young earthers, apparently. Uh, and I, I see that now in retrospect. I was try, almost patronizing in retrospect. And I don't, I don't need to do that. Um, I'm convinced that the world is old and that common descent of some kind happened biologically. I, I don't necessarily think uh, that it happened according to neo-Darwinist mechanisms. In fact, I'm right. strongly convinced it did not happen. Did not happen according to neo-Darwinist mechanisms. It's not random mutations that cause all these creatures to come about. That's, that's philosophically impossible and there's not empirical evidence for that. Um, right. Uh, and the reason that I'm convinced that the world is old and that common descent happened is because I think there's a lot of great uh, natural evidence for that, natural observations that you can go out and look at, that you can pick up a book and read. I'm not taking scientists' word for it, at least not not any more than I'm taking their word for it, that those rocks are really there and those fossils are really there, the basic stuff. I don't just trust them, otherwise I would be a neo-Darwinist. Um, right. And I'm not really sure how to interpret uh, parts of Genesis. Um, and I'm tentatively okay with that. I think Genesis is complicated literature. It's more complicated than uh, the rocks. The rocks don't tell a very complex story. The rocks don't tell you very much about the world. The rocks tell you a very, very narrow thing actually, but what they do say, that very narrow thing they say is so clear and hard to refute. Um, and so I, think the world is old and I need to figure out how I've been misinterpreting parts of Genesis. That doesn't mean Genesis is infinitely flexible, but it means that uh, there, are, there are ways in which I personally have been misreading it uh, as teaching that the world is young, for example. Um, but anyways, that, that's sidebar. Yeah. Uh, about angels, it's not really clear to me how uh, normal angels might or might not be involved in biology just normally. So if, if I'm, I'm taking for granted here that common descent happened, that all these animals are descended from one another uh, historically over millions of years, well, that doesn't happen naturally. It can't happen naturally. Um, it's maybe some parts. May, maybe you could get, you know, flying squirrels from squirrels. Maybe. I'm not even sure about that, but um, some of the bigger jumps, especially like you certainly can't get an animal from a plant. It's a different kind of soul, an animal right. conscious soul, a sentient soul, not a reasonable soul like ours, but an animal has a different kind of soul than a plant. It's a higher being than a plant. You can't get an animal from a plant. You can't get life from non-life also. Like there's, there must be something supernatural involved in the descent of biology and in the different changes of biology. I don't know how often or how many times it needs to be involved, maybe all the time, but maybe angels are very, very frequently involved in biology. Maybe common descent is primarily mediated by angels. And maybe some of those angels are bad and made hyenas. 
It, 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 yeah, it does seem to me, uh, you know, when we look at, again, Genesis doesn't depict creation this way, but some of the Psalms do depict creation as sort of uh, uh, warfare, which is very common, common language about creation in the ancient Near East. Uh, and, and it does seem to me that, you know, it, it's possible that you could read uh, Genesis as sort of an achievement, an achievement of God where the creation that he intended, uh, uh, the creation that he intended is, pro is actually brought about. Now, of course, Genesis 1, again, is not directly doing that. Genesis 1 is not, Genesis 1 and 2 are not teaching there was a war and, God, and Eden was sort of God's success in that war, but the, in combination with right. other passages. The, the closest uh, you get to that in Genesis is the, the emphasis on overcoming chaos. It's uh, tohu vavohu and God bringing order to this chaos. Right. But that's a little different. Yes, though, though it's, though it's there, yeah, there, there could be at least sort of cryptic allusions there. And, that, and, and tohu vavohu, when you look at it in Jeremiah 4 and all the passages where tohu vavohu, formless and void for those who don't know Hebrew, <laughs> when to, darkness, tohu bohu, these are all negative terms in the rest of, his, in the, rest of the Old Testament. Mm. You know, it's always God bringing you out of tohu bahovu and darkness. And yeah, so there's this, kind of overcoming of the primordial chaos, if you will. Um, uh, and and so, so, so the ordering of Eden is kind of the final triumph. Um, but there's other passages that predict this, in, that, that, I'm sorry, uh, uh, um, that depict this in, in kind of warfare languages, language, and particularly in the Psalms. Um, none, none of which is to, none of which is to, to again say something that's particularly dogmatic. But one does wonder if there is some room to say that some of what we see in the natural world uh, is the vestige of, and again, especially if we recognize the distinction between what's achieved by God in Eden versus the rest of creation, and then that order is meant to be expanded to the rest of creation, fill the earth with this kind of Edenic existence. Uh, um, right. It's possible that there are, there, that's, that's in part overcoming the, the activity of some sinister, uh, some sinister agents. Uh, and it's not unfitting. I'd, I'd want to... Go ahead. Sorry, you continue. I was just going to say real quick, that's not unfitting to the way we see the act, what we do actually see depicted of angelic activity in, in the Old and New Testaments. It's not unfitting to what we actually, the revelation that we do get about them and, and is actually fairly consonant with the depiction or the parallel depiction of such things uh, in most, you know, sort of the world's literatures that, you know, where we see their, their depiction and, and sort of memory, if you will, their deep memory of, of these kind of agencies. Um, so it's, again, right. there's some speculation here, but it's, it's an available category, I think, and, and in trying to interpret everything there is to say about the natural world and some of the problems that come up. And I'd, I'd want to be wary of emphasizing uh, the sinister aspects of creation, uh, especially creation outside of Eden, too much. Um, I'm not sure, first of all, I'm not sure if any of it should be called sinister. I think that the whole thesis is um, something I'm not sure about. Um, and I do mean that. That's not just a nice way of saying I disagree. It's like, I'm just not sure about right. if, if right. you know, demons made hyenas. Maybe God made hyenas and God thinks hyenas are awesome. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but um, I also think 
we need to be careful of swallowing too much of the Darwinistic emphasis on the natural world as this vile place of suffering and death. Um, nature red in tooth and claw. Right. It's mostly nature is about cooperation and symbiotic relationships and stuff. Like mostly right. nation is like, wow, look how many things can coexist and get along. And I don't think it's particularly nature red and tooth and claw for blue whales to eat krill, for example, even though that's right. predation. Um, I mean, Richard Dawkins will talk about how even trees being tall and having trunks, he calls that warfare because uh, he's like, they're all fighting to get the light, which is, that's kind of true. They are fighting to get the light. Um, but we don't have to, we don't have to emphasize creation uh, the natural world as this incredibly violent thing. We can mostly think of it as peaceful cooperation uh, and symbiosis and yeah. emphasis. But but then also what you're saying about Eden is important. Uh, we need to recognize three different levels that are operating here, three different kinds of goodness. There's, you could think of it as uh, all of the created world outside of Eden the stuff that Adam is supposed to go out and conquer. Uh, that's one thing. And that is clearly not as good as Eden. Whatever that means and whatever that looks like, it's clearly not the same as Eden. And he's supposed to do something Edenic to it. So there's the rest of the world. And then there's Eden. And then I think there's maybe new heavens and new earth, which is yeah. not the same as Eden. It's better than Eden. So yes. like good, very good, best. And maybe that maps onto something like um, wolves. Yeah, wolves are good. It's cool and like lions and wolves, it's great. God praises them, that's good, but it can be better. We can do like sheep dogs, which are still eating meat and dog food and stuff, but you know, like, hey, that's better. And then in the eschaton, I'm not really sure, but something even better where animals don't even suffer. We can maintain that animal suffering is not ideal. We can even strive to limit animal suffering so far as we are involved in it. We can limit yep. the suffering of our animals and so on, and even of wildlife. And we can say that God made it that way and that that was his choice. I mean, for some reason, God saw fit for Adam to sin. Like It was in God's plan for Adam to sin for some reason. Right. God is has weird plans. I don't know why God does what he does. I'm Job standing before God saying, okay, I'll be quiet and just say that you know what you're doing and I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why you made um, predators, God. And right. I don't know why, or I, maybe you allowed demons to make hyenas. And even if you allowed demons to make hyenas, I, I can't tolerate saying that demons made all predators. Right. Oh, certainly not. Yeah. And that's right. where you'd want, maybe want to make, the, again, that distinction between sort of like, you know, pre-fall and childbirth labor and the judgment labor. Right. Um, uh, just just to pause for a moment to our listeners, uh, uh, two books that are, you know, they, they're in some ways contradictory hypotheses, but some in some ways, possibly there's some complementary hypotheses to be brought out of these. But two people that have thought very deeply about this that, that Brad and I have engaged personally is um, 
John Garvey's God's Good Earth. Um, uh, I'll, I'll hold it up here. This is a really helpful yeah. work that I think John Garvey does get it, something we just talked about, which is, you know, he sort of contests just as a, you know, a good scientist. He looks at the created world and he, he does a lot of good biblical exegesis on the one hand, but one of the things he really tries to show is, you know, this depiction of nature as red in tooth and claw is very, at least very often, maybe there's, there's exceptions, but at least very often it's kind of a projection. It's a kind of dramatization of what's really going on if we're looking more closely at God's created order. And it um, makes for better nature documentaries too. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> With a, you know, Richard Attenborough voice. The drama. Preaching his predator. But uh, uh, the other one is The Dome of Eden by Stephen Webb. Uh, and he's the one um, that Webb, Webb died tragically just a few years ago, but he, he's, a, he's a somewhat speculative person, but a very thoughtful person and does entertain, at least, at least bring up the conversation of the potential role that more sinister agencies took in uh, some of the features we see in the natural world. And these are emerging conversations. I mean, one of the reasons Brad and I are doing this, Bradley and I are doing this, is that we're... Uh, you know, there's a lot of questions to be asked that are difficult and a lot of hypotheses out there. And we're trying to talk out loud about them. And uh, 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 in, in fact, in fact, this is one of the reasons we invite uh, listener feedback. If you have any uh, uh, thought of your own that would be helpful along these lines, we would love to hear it. Uh, but Brad, just moving on. That, we have a that first book, though, I'm especially a big fan of that first book, God's Good Earth. Not so much a fan of that second book by Stephen <laughs> God's Good Earth. You guys should get that book. That's a great book if you're interested in this subject. Yeah, yeah. God's Good Earth. Um, just, just moving on then. Uh, what, what are, what are good? Um, you know, just for for those who maybe come from a more traditional kind of young Earth creation view about predatorial, you know, predatorial behavior and such. One popular claim out there. Uh, uh, let's let's talk about dinosaurs for a second. This is fun. Uh, <laughs> what are what are good? Uh, natural theological reasons to question the young earth creation here for instance is it really plausible that t-rexes ate plants or that or that rabbit legs aren't for 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 fleeing like heck from predators uh, you know you know so I, I remember when i was a kid uh it was kind of commonly claimed among you know sort of your answers in genesis or whatever something like this that uh you know the the teeth and t-rexes you know don't have a, a deep enough you know whatever to uh to have eaten to have eaten meat so they couldn't have been like meat to take bites yeah. yeah yeah so they must have been plant eaters you know what do you say to you know these kinds of you know these kinds of retorts well it's it's more interesting to think about it from an ecosystem perspective thinking like let's do this thought experiment here think animals don't die animals not dying okay so how far are we willing to take this are we saying that like plants don't of course plants die okay so plants still die okay so <clears throat> but then you have uh bunnies say rabbits rabbits are reproducing Rabbits reproduce at a pretty crazy rate. And rabbits keep producing. They multiply. They fill the earth. Um, they really fill the earth. <laughs> right. Um, okay, so we can't have too many rabbits. So apparently there comes a point where rabbits stop. Like rabbits no longer multiply. Like they're no longer as, and not just animals, but like all creatures. Like soon the world is full. Nobody, nobody reproduces anymore. There are no more, no more milk in the world, no more babies in the world. It's children of men um, or uh, uh, children of animals or I don't know, crazy analogy. Um, 
Sorry, I was referring to the book Children of Men. Where yeah, okay. <laughs> D. D. James. Yeah. I'm reading that right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, you also end up with a situation where, okay, what happens if animals stop eating food? Okay, like animal, an animal's just like, oh, I'm depressed. I'm not going to eat. Apparently, they don't die. Like it's impossible. They can't die. Like, oh, well, why would an animal eat at all then? Um, and pretty soon animals, they're, the animals that are naturally selected over the, while they're still reproducing, they're naturally selected to not eat. So pretty soon you have like these animals subsisting on nothingness. Um, I mean, we're, we're talking about an ecosystem that's um, unimaginable to us. It's maybe this is something like what the eschaton will be like. I'm not ruling that out. I'm not saying that this is an impossibility. My point is that this would be so radically different than anything like what we have right now on planet Earth that it's barely even analogous. So it's it's not just about oh, T-Rex eating plants. It's it's about there being no defense mechanisms, no need for any immune systems, no need for speed. Speed becomes irrelevant. No real need for digestion, really, arguably. I mean, what is life even in that situation for the animal kingdom as we know it? Like, it, it is so radically different. Thomas Aquinas is right to call it most unreasonable. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but... Uh, to, what's your retort to the T-Rex teeth issue? Uh, is there is there a good? Uh, <laughs> is there is oh, there? A... I think they were strong enough. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. nah. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the other peculiar things you mentioned answers in Genesis a moment ago. One of the peculiar things about the modern young Earther position uh, that denies animal death and carnivores before the fall is, well, this is how modern it is. Um, it's been completely normal through church history to be uh, affirming a young earth. Young earthing, being a young earther, that's completely normal. Mm. The weird thing is this, this vegetarianism, absolute, well, absolute veganism before the fall. That is a peculiar, mostly peculiar modern weird thing. And a lot of it starts with Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, and you have uh, Ellen White who had visions of, you know, these weird charismatic visions of flood geology and uh, of how there were only vegetarians before the fall. And this is why Seventh-day Adventists are vegetarians. They are ethical vegetarians uh, who believe it's wrong to, or ethically problematic at least, to eat meat. Mm -hmm. And they were the ones who spearheaded the modern version of the Young Earther movement. And that's why evangelicals today, they've inherited this uh, as a movement. They've inherited it from the Seventh-day Adventists. And that's why Answers in Genesis emphasizes the vegetarian aspect so very strongly because they they get right. ethical vegetarians and yet it's weird because it's transferred into the evangelical community uh without the ethical vegetarianism so someone will be eating their steak telling you about how like oh right. <laughs> meat is because of sin i'm like okay so 
why are you eating steak? Like, stop it. Right. If you, it's actually, I mean, like, there's not, it's not a logically coherent position ethically to, to believe that. Um, this is the created good, you know. Right. I mean, <laughs> it, and Jesus ate the meat and everything too. Obviously, Jesus was not a vegetarian. Yes. I mean, yes. if you're going to be affirming this, uh, that carnivorism is an evil or the, at least the result of evil, then it makes sense to be a Seventh-day Adventist and be an ethical vegetarian. Right. You're going to have your steak. You might as well affirm carnivores. You can't have your steak and eat it too. For those who are interested in the historical uh, uh, origin of the modern version of, I mean, obviously, um, I think Andrew Brown has written the, I think his name is Andrew Brown, if I'm remembering his name, has written the work on the interpretation. Derek, in my interview with Derek Peterson, he mentioned this, has written the kind of history of interpretation of Genesis 1. But for those who are interested in the history of modern young earth creationism, what, uh, where, where would they go to look for that, the information you just said? Oh, I'm not really sure. Uh, I've... I think Ronald Numbers does this. Yeah. His book is good. Yeah, Ronald Numbers. And I, I <laughs> that's what I meant to say. Yeah, Ronald Numbers. I I, I, I could be wrong, but I, I want to say Davis Young might do some historical work on this as well in the Bible Rocks and Time. I think uh uh I don't know if he mentions this carnivorous yes. of it though. Uh, he doesn't mention the most of the bio most of the carnivorism stuff. Uh in the Bible Rocks and Time is an excellent book. Highly recommend that one. Yeah. Uh, he only talks about uh, geology and uh, geological understandings throughout church history and uh, to a broader extent the history of creationism it's more of a section of the book not the whole subject of the book right it, it is a good overview right well perhaps we can we can summarize what we've said here to get a whole picture um, you know just to just to throw out some claims there for our listeners who who might want to uh, you know, sort of keep, keep some of these things in their head, you know, some of the things to think about are whether or not man and animals were created mortal, uh, but, but man's destiny was to live. So maybe, maybe it's possible that animals died a good death. If we were trying to synthesize everything we've said, maybe animals died a good death without tons of senseless suffering before the fall. Uh, and maybe it's possible that sinister agencies uh, post God's good creation have always been trying to to intrude in that process. You know, again, there's some speculation possibly there. Um, but then you have this this issue of the Eden. Uh, there's also this distinction between uh, that God's good creation and, and and the better creation, if you will, of Eden. The world of Eden invites, and in fact, the world of Eden invites man to kind of. Uh, this is this isn't stating it very technically, but it's uh, you know you could put it this way: put the kind of finishing touches on creation while while subduing God's enemies, the serpent, and this and maybe this looks like it's possible that it, in fact inviting animals into the world of Eden actually was uh, relieved of some of that suffering outside of it, and, he, and even even perhaps participated in the fulfillment of their nature and their ordering. Again, one thing that's so interesting in Lewis. Uh, is that when when reason orders nature, actually nature becomes more itself. It doesn't become less itself. Um, and maybe man's destiny, if we were to then take that third tier, uh, uh, Eden is meant to become eventually the new heavens and new earth, which is, you know, good, better, best. World outside the garden, good. Eden, 
better, you know, uh, uh, the new heavens, the new earth best. Maybe man's destiny was always to achieve a kind of life that could not perish even in principle and to extend God's good final good reign to the world and be crowned with immortality. But then, and this is where death is a a grief in scripture, where it does portray it as a grief, is that in man's refusal, in Adam's refusal of the life that God offers him, he then uh, spreads death to himself and then disorder to the creation in general, um, however we would articulate that. Um, But, you know, putting all that together, uh, uh, Brad, how does this help us with the Christian ethic toward animals? You know, what's, how should we, we, we've talked a little bit about this, but maybe we can make it more explicit now. What what is the destiny of of animals? And what does Christian labor in the natural world now have to do with extending the reign of Christ, who has achieved the new heavens and new earth and his resurrection in the present? How does the resurrection, if you will, now, I put it in the language of Oliver Rodonovan. How does the resurrection affect the moral order? You know, what does it have to say? <laughs> what is our final end, if I could put it that way? Our final end with animals and with the natural world have to do with the Christian ethic now toward animals and toward the destiny, toward our treatment of, of the natural world in that sense. Um, I'm not confident enough in the eschatological details of animal life to to draw through implications for that specifically, <clears throat> except for maybe maybe this, that uh, I am sure that we should strive to limit animal suffering that is within our scope, so to speak. So like when you're hunting an animal, you give it a quick death. When you're slaughtering your cow in your backyard, you, you give it a quick death, you don't torture it. Um, uh, you, when you're raising your animals, raising your flocks of chickens or whatnot, you give them good, pleasant lives. You seek to not just minimize animal suffering, but to increase animal happiness. Uh, yeah. It's an important ethical thing, how we treat our livestock. And it is a great uh, moral feeling in America. Not the greatest, of course, but it is a great uh, moral failing in America that we do not treat our livestock well. We, I mean, if you've ever been to uh, a feedlot, for example, or been inside one of those huge chicken houses where they raise all these battery chickens, um, they are horrible places for animals to be. Uh, can, I mean, it's basically prison. Um, it's worse. Right. Than <laughs> right. Uh, and of course, I'm not, I'm way, abortion is way, way worse, of course. I'm not drawing analogies with abortion, just because some people are going to be thinking, oh, you call that one of the greatest things. Yeah. No, I'm saying animals matter. We don't want to torture our animals. Give animals natural, good animal lives. Then be healthier for them and healthier for us anyway. Um, I, I recall um, one, of the, one of the kind of paradoxical moments that I think makes biblical and natural theological sense, but perhaps uh, would be uh, uh, kind of paradoxical to a modern sentiment there in the documentary Food Inc. Uh, Jared's, Joel Salatin, of course, this you know, famous farmer who cares a lot about the ethical yeah. treatment of animals. Christian is, farmer. <laughs> yeah, Christian farmer, uh, who's, he cares so much. He, his book title, I love, The Marvelous Pigness of Pigs. You know, <laughs> but uh, uh, he, really interesting guy and just loves the Lord and seems loves creation. 
but he's talking about how important it is to, uh, to, to give animals a good life. You know, we're going to eat them. You know, it's very important. It's, it's part of our ethical imperative to give them a meaningful, healthy, flourishing life for their natures. And he's talking about this in this documentary with moral passion, you know, while he's slaughtering a chicken. <laughs> and, yeah. I, and I loved, I loved that image. There was something almost perfect about that. That he's, I'm not saying we don't eat these things. <laughs> Chickens yeah, are I mean, uh, I've, I've slaughtered animals too before, killed cows and stuff and chickens. I mean, a lot of people done chickens. Um, I've seen cows live happy life. I love cows. I have a deep emotional uh, link to cows. I love cows. And I want there to be more happy cows in the world. I want there to be more cows, period, in the world. And I want there to be more cow happiness. And for me to have happy cows on my land and then to kill them quickly and respectfully and eat them, uh, I see this as a net gain in goodness uh, in our current world. I don't see it as, oh my gosh, how horrible that the cow died. I think maybe it'll be different one day in the new creation. I don't know. But for now, right here in this world, right here, I think this is about as good as it gets. And this is great. Yeah. Yeah. At least, at least this is our approximation. You know, maybe there's, yeah, maybe. This is our be... Eden. That's Eden. <laughs> yeah. This is our approximation. Yeah, that's right. Well, um, uh, before we sign off here, is there anything else you think we should say about this subject? Any finishing touches? Uh, I wanted to read that passage from Romans 8, the one that we didn't even mention yet. Which oh, wow. Oh, right. This is important. Yes. Yeah. I mean, but it's good to conclude with because I think yeah. now that we've talked about all this stuff, it can actually make a lot more sense of this passage. I'll, I'll read it here. Um, and I'll interject while I'm reading it. Yep. The earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Meaning, by the way, this is God subjected creation to this, and he did it in hope, which is interesting. It's not like, oh, he did it in horrible judgment. Um, and it's talking about an earnest expectation that creation is waiting for this. It's, there's a hope happening here because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So they're waiting for our resurrection. Basically they're waiting for our, uh, they're waiting for creation 2.0 for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with the birth pangs together until now the birth pangs together until now. So that's an interesting analogy to use for this pain because it's not just pain that is uh, completely pointless going nowhere. This is a birth pain. This is a pain where something good is supposed to come out of this pain. This is analogous to, to Eve's pain actually, where maybe this was supposed to happen all along, but the pain has gotten worse and prolonged for some reason like the sin of man. Um, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. But I think this passage is saying that they're waiting for the resurrection, that the creation is going to be 
uh, new. That the, the creation wants to be creation 2.0, uh, the, the third tier that we're talking about. And it was always going to be there. And right. you introduced this big delay. And it's our fault. And there, it was supposed to be a quick labor, but now it's become a longer, more painful labor. It's just the, the, uh, the old ways of wolves and so on, the, the old ways of animal suffering and death, which God subjected creation to in hope, not as judgment, that has been prolonged a little because of man's sin. And it won't be fully culminated to perfection until the redemption of the sons of God. Yeah, that's really, yeah, that's really helpful. Um, again, uh, to our listeners, you know, Brad and I in working through these things recognize, you know, that some of the thing, these are difficult topics and, uh, uh, and some of the, some of the lines of inquiry, I mean, part of what we want to do on this program is actually give voice to, uh, as you can tell, things we're not, in some cases, entirely sure about. Uh, some, some of the things we're more confident of than others. You know, it does seem yeah. like we make a really good case for uh, animal death prior to the fall and this sort of thing. Uh, but some of these other lines of inquiry are a little more, uh, a little more difficult. And there's, again, there's works that try to, to try to work this out in a more thorough way. Uh, our conversation is largely to, to introduce our listeners to kind of the range of options that are available to evangelical Orthodox Christians who care about the Bible and the natural world out there, and maybe 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 lines of inquiry that are helpful in giving us giving us a full picture. Um, but uh, that's all from us today. So from us to you, from a couple of dudes to you guys, we'll see you next time. <laughs>